I was probably a 15, 16 year old um, kid on the street. He looked homeless. And again, to be homeless in a third world country is different than it is to be homeless here. Uh, in some ways it's the same, but in some ways it's very different. But, but he was asking um, for money and I, I honestly didn't have any cash on me. And he said, can I have your water? And, uh, and I was like, yeah, I mean, yeah. So, so I give him the water and I watched him. I mean, it was literally more than that. I watched him pound it immediately. Like, like completely pounded it. And his friends were like trying to get some and he wouldn't let them have any. And then I just realized like, oh, he's poor in a place that has no water and he can't afford bottled water. So he can literally, and people in Cape Town, especially in the, in the Cape Flats, have literally um, died of thirst uh, or gotten really, really sick drinking really, really dirty water. And something that we're so used to just to have water anywhere we go when it's, um, when it's scarce, it was just, it blew my mind. Uh, and I ended up, we ended up going and uh, not, not to pump myself up. We, it was just like, oh my gosh, we should buy all these, all three of these teenagers like water. Like they need water. Uh, we did that. But, but to see that level of thirst was shocking. Now here's the thing. As, as humans, as we walk around, Jesus uses the picture of physical thirst to teach us today about spiritual thirst. That you and everyone in your life are very, very thirsty. And very few of us get satisfied consistently. We're like thirsty people um, who never seem to find what we need to drink. And, and Jesus is going to talk about this today. And so I want to ask, um, are you thirsty? Are you, uh, are you satisfied spiritually? And I think that, that there's so much we can learn from and through Jesus today about satisfaction. So I'm going to read this story about a woman looking for satisfaction and a Savior who longs to give not only her, but us that satisfaction. So again, John chapter 4, verse 1, it says this. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, and there was a lot of jealousies over who had more disciples, probably learned about that last week. Verse 3, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Again, Jesus' fame is spreading. People are getting jealous. People are getting angry. People are getting inspired. People are being activated. But what no one is doing is ignoring Jesus. He is on, everyone has an opinion about him. His fame or his infamy, depending on what side of the coin you were at the time, is growing. Um, more and more disciples, more and more controversy. Verse 4, and he came to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Um, so Jesus goes to an area called Samaria, which was a part of Israel that was in between Galilee, where Jesus and the disciples were from, and Jerusalem, the capital of kind of Israel's religious political establishment, obviously a city that is still there today. And it was occupied by an ethnic group called the Samaritans, kind of this area in between. Uh, again, if you, if you think through something like Barstow, uh, Barstow, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's designed to get you from San Diego to Las Vegas or it, that type of thing. Um, or the, or the stretch, the eight freeway between San Diego and Phoenix, Arizona, whatever it is, there are these, um, spaces that, that, that aren't really places people go to for what they are. It's often their places that you go through to get somewhere else. And so, uh, Samaria was kind of like this. It was occupied by an ethnic group called Samaritans and Samaritans were essentially interracial people. Uh, uh, they were half Jewish, half Assyrian. Um, and, and their religion was essentially a form of syncretism, which blended Judaism with other customs. And so they were ethnically and spiritually blended people. They also rejected Jerusalem, saying that the temple had been corrupted by the Jewish leaders. So there was a Samaritan spiritual leader uh, before the time of Jesus that called people to, to make places in Jerusalem like Jacob's well, where they were, that's still there today, um, a holy site, and to make that a place of worship. And these people were hated. Uh, these people hated and were hated by the Jewish people. Again, um, uh, there was a lot of ethnic pride and, and even racism in, in Judaism. And there was this sense that, again, we, we have God's law. Uh, we, are, we are better than you. We have the temple. We are better than you. And there was so much animosity between the two groups that Jews would often travel around Samaria instead of going through it when going between Judea and Galilee. Um, and again, you might go, oh, I mean, that makes sense. If, I don't know if they were kind of beefing and stuff. Um, here's the thing. It would take five to six extra days to go around. You're walking on foot. It's hot out. 
I mean, you have to, you got to be really be motivated to not go through. And they would take the detour because they believed um, Samaria was dangerous and defiled. Dangerous. Uh, Frequently, Jewish people were attacked along the road by Samaritan bandits. That's the Good Samaritan story. Uh, That's a a parable Jesus told about being attacked on the road. And that made sense because it was so common. Uh, That story made sense to them because it was so common that you would get attacked on that road. It'd be like if Jesus came to Temecula and said, um, there was a man stuck in traffic on the 15. You'd be like, I get that. Okay, I've heard, I've I've, I've seen this situation before. Then he teaches a story. Uh, and so it was, it was dangerous and it was also defiled in their minds because of all the idolatry and syncretism, uh, space. And so he hits a town called, so Jesus goes through there this time and he hits a town called Sychar, which, which contains an ancient Middle Eastern monuments of sorts that according to Jewish, Samaritan, Christian, and Muslim tradition is a piece of land that was inherited, um, by Jacob from his father, Isaac, and then given to his son, uh, Joseph back, uh, but, but he gets it back in Genesis 33, thousands of years prior prior to the life of Jesus. Um, the well is still there today. Uh, on this piece of property, there was a well, again, that they believed Jacob had used to water his flocks. This land was in Samaria, again, in modern-day Israel. The water is now in the middle of a monastery. Uh, you can go see it today if you want to. It's about 135 feet deep. It's not very big, so you could literally see exactly where generally Jesus would sit. And so Jesus kind of pops a squat, tired from his journey, uh, sits down. And, uh, and you can imagine how hot it was in the middle of the day in the Middle East. The sixth hour in Roman timekeeping, ancient Roman timekeeping, was 12 noon. Uh, and I guess living in the Temecula Valley, you don't need to, to, to imagine what a hot afternoon is like. Uh, but, he, but it's a hot afternoon there. And, uh, and, uh, and so that's the setting. So he's sitting there and he starts talking to this woman. And I'll pick up in verse 7. A woman from Samaria, this hated group, came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. So she's asking, why are you talking to me? And she's asking this question for a reason. Again, it made no sense to her that Jesus was talking. To her. Because to the original audience, this interaction between Jesus and the woman would have been scandalous. Jesus talking to a woman around a watering hole, what's scandalous about that interaction? Nothing to us. But to the original audience, three things would have made this interaction absolutely scandalous. The first reason is that she is a, spoiler alert, a woman. Jesus was already known as a holy man. He was known as someone who was leading a movement to, to bring Israel back to God. In that culture, many devout Jewish men would not have allowed themselves to be alone with a woman. If it was unavoidable that they should, they certainly wouldn't have started a conversation with them. Kind of an awkward elevator vibe. The risk they, again, the risk they would have thought was way too high, the risk of impurity, the risk of gossip, the risk of being drawn into sexual sin, which is a really immature, sexualized way to view women, by the way. This isn't God's view of women. Clearly, it's not Jesus' view of women. Some man can't ever be alone with a woman, uh, and that's on them. Okay? And maybe that's not wise for them, but that's because of them. And yet Jesus is talking to this woman. Later in this chapter, the disciples are super weirded out. He's alone with this woman. So we'll see. So the first reason is, is, is she is a woman. The second reason is uh, why it would have been scandalous is she's a Samaritan which I described above above was not a positive thing in the eyes of the Jewish community of Jesus' day. Jewish leaders would often pray, thank you for not making me a Samaritan. Can you imagine someone standing up at Restored Temecula and praying like that? I've seen a lot of racism in my life, but this is shockingly racist to pray, thank God for not making me white or black or Latino. If you are white, black, or Latino, and you heard someone pray that, it would be shocking. You can't get more condescending than God. God hates you too. God, you were an accident in a sense. Um, Ancient Jews definitely wouldn't have eaten or drank with Samaritans or shared silverware or drinking vessels with them, and yet Jesus is here asking this woman for a drink. The third reason is she wasn't just a Samaritan. She wasn't just a woman. She was a scandalously sinful woman. We know this because of the conversation Jesus is about to have with her, but we also have a good idea of this because the well was a pretty decent distance away from the town she would have lived in. And in a culture without cars or air conditioning, if you were going to go and draw water and carry it back 
a decent distance. The normal time of day you would go to fetch the water would absolutely be in the morning before the sun was all the way out. Uh, my kids, any, anyone have, uh, any parents in the house have kids on summer vacation right now, right? Oh, so intense. Uh, they're going to go back soon. It's going to be like, let my people go. Me and my wife can have our house back. Um, we live in a very small house in Uptown. Temecula, you at least have a, a, a decent sized house. Um, for us, that's not a reality. Uh, my house is smaller than this. It's pretty much it right here. Um, my cl- uh, so my son Clive's on summer vacation right now. He's starting to play basketball. He wants to play basketball in the backyard a lot. And if I'm going to play basketball with Clive in our backyard uh, these days, I pretty much tell him it's between 7 and 9 a.m. and 6 and 8 p.m. Same idea here. Uh, we wouldn't walk somewhere at the hottest part of the day if you could avoid it. This woman has come at the time of day when she was least likely to meet anyone, at least anyone she knows, knows her, her past, and her sinful lifestyle. The last thing she would want to do is bump into the other women of the town. They would feel the same about her. And yet here is Jesus talking to this woman alone. The woman that other women would have guarded their husbands from. And he's going to share with her the message of who he is and what he has come to offer. So jump down to verse 10, or next verse, verse 10. Sorry, I had an iPad situation. I have this paper. It's a little little cray. You'll survive. Jesus answered her. She's like, why are you talking to me if you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan and you're a man, I'm a woman? Uh, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Again, this is classic Jesus talking to someone um, about the spiritual when they think he's talking about the physical she thinks, he's talking, she thinks he's talking about kind of literal H2O, but what he's talking about here is, remember H2O, Whitewater Canyon? No. Not Soak City? All right. Water country, water country, or wherever you guys have up here. I forget. What's the big one? You do, Come on. It's so hot. Raging water. That's the one. That's the one. Yeah. Anyways, he thinks she's talking about H2O, literal water. And he's not. He's talking about something more. So we'll see. Verse 11. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Remember, 135 feet deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Okay? So she's pretty annoyed with Jesus at this point. Uh, Logically, she's like, Jacob was like the man. Um, and literally he's, Israel's named after him. Um, and, and he needed water. Like he was a spiritual giant. He needed water. Who are you that you don't need water, that you're above needing water like all of us do? Um, she's pretty annoyed. Also, um, she's probably used to the, the reality that when men talk to her, it's either to condemn her or to run game to sleep with her. Or the worst of the worst, people condemn her publicly and seduce her privately. And so either way, she, she doesn't seem to be into the conversation, pushing back a little bit. Jesus pushes through. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Again, she seems to be a little bit more interested at this point. Maybe she, maybe she doesn't have to walk anymore. Maybe it's, it sounds like a weird YouTube video or someone has like some fake uh, invention or something, some weird ad. Uh, Do you want to never drink water again and have great abs? You know, one of those uh, videos. <laughs> but Jesus here is making the claim not that he has literal water that will keep you from having to literally drink water ever again. He's making the claim that he can satisfy, hear me, every longing of the human heart. Everything that you have ever wanted or the thing that was behind the thing that you wanted can be fulfilled in him. That's what he's saying. Keep reading verse 16 through 18. Um, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Okay, good thing no one was there, uh, because this really feels like a scenario. People would have been like, oh, five husbands. The one she's with now is not her husband. But now the water talk makes a ton of sense. You know, Pharisees, like you know, tassels, <laughs> be flying everywhere. 
falling over. You see, just like this woman daily has to come to get water, drink it, and then wake up the next morning thirsty again and has to go back continually to get water, she has to go to the well of men and sex and romance, looking to men for security to satisfy the thirst of her soul. Page break. And it would satisfy her for a little while, right? But ultimately it left her thirsty. And so she'd go from one marriage to another, one marriage to another. And every time she would think, this is the guy, this one's going to work out. This one seems nice. My mom likes him. But she'd wake up the next morning still thirsty. And so she turned to another and another and another. And then she gives up on the idea of marriage altogether. And what she does every day with that water, that bucket for her physical thirst, she's doing with sex for her soul thirst. She's so thirsty. So many of us are addicted to so many things. So many of us give ourselves to so many things and we're thirsty and we try to change the externals, but we don't deal with our heart. And Jesus is just going, we'll see. Verse 19. The woman said to him, oh, this is pretty amazing after he said all that stuff. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. <laughs> kind of an understatement. And the next, she, 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 she tries to change the topic. She says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. If you're a prophet, I have a spiritual query. Um, I don't want to do anything with what you just told me. I have a question. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Um, uh, yeah, okay. So, uh, so I'll just read that part so far. Uh, so she asked a random, random theological question to throw focus. And I want you to see this, okay? He goes, I know all this stuff about you. Um, and, and she goes, oh, you must be a prophet. So then she goes, yeah, as you know, there's a lot of disagreements between what Jews and Samaritans believe about worship. We should worship at places like Jacob's well, or if we should worship at the temple, you know? So, um, and so people do this a lot. People still do this. When they're pressed with the claims of Jesus by someone who loves them or a pastor or an evangelist, and they start to look in the mirror and see their own soul and what they see is ugly, they want to change topics real quick. And this is people outside the faith who don't want to submit to Jesus and admit they have a need for him. There's also people who claim to be inside the faith. who don't want to repent of their own sin and defend um, their sin. Um, I, I, I've, I, I've literally uh, been in scenarios as a pastor where someone is emotionally abusing their wife. And they're like, what about predestination? Cool, there's books on that. You got to stop being a jerk though. It's destructive. It's disgusting. And Jesus wants to transform it because he loves you. But you have to own where you're at right now. What about hell? What about people who have never heard the gospel? What about homosexuality? You just throw out, okay, these are all valid topics. These are all things the Bible deals with at some level. But, um, but, but, but that's not what we need to talk about right now. Right? I don't want to submit to the claims about Jesus because what about people who have never heard the gospel? Well, you're hearing the gospel. We get into what, what God can do with those scenarios as someone who's infinitely wise and gracious. But, but what about you? Uh, we have a politician or two who do this in our country right now. One political strategist called this the dead cat strategy. Uh, and so the, 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 the imagery is kind of like uh, you're playing a poker game and someone starts, is cheating at poker and someone can kind of see that they're cheating. And someone goes, hey, bro, are you cheating? And, he, and, and then the guy takes a dead cat out and throws it on the table. And everyone's like, whoa, a dead cat. Whoa, whoa. Media shines a light on something shady they've done. They throw a dead cat on the table to throw focus. What about this thing over here that has nothing to do with this? Both parties do this, by the way. And we do this spiritually as people. We're, we're never going to grow spiritually as long as we only ask Jesus questions. We never let Jesus ask us hard questions. We have a ministry at our church called Alpha uh, right now. It's a space for skeptics and, and, and people who aren't yet followers of Jesus to ask hard questions. Why is there suffering in the world? How can we really trust the Bible? Those are good questions to ask. But we also have to let him ask questions of us. Who is the Lord of your life? What are you really living for? Are you actually happy? How is that going for you? And this is what she's doing here, but Jesus doesn't let himself get distracted. He lovingly keeps pressing on her the reality of who he is and why he came. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. By the way, woman here is not derogatory. Uh, it's the same thing he calls his mom, not only at the wedding, but also on the cross. He says, woman, here's your son. Son, uh, here's your mother. Um, again, this is, a, uh, this is actually a tender term um, or a, a neutral to tender term. This isn't like, 
Uh, again, we can see that he's even dealing with her, talking to her, spending time with her. Um, Jesus is not a misogynistic jerk. Uh, he empowered women in so many ways that, that, that men's culture were so far from doing. Um, so I just want to say that's not what's going on. If you have questions about that, Tom would love to talk about it. Um, but don't hear, like, again, you can't read this. This is uh, translated to English uh, from Greek, Aramaic, and Hebrew. Also, Jesus didn't have a southern accent. So it's not like, woman, believe me, which sounds so much worse than woman, believe me. Okay? And it's even better than that. Jesus said to her, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Um, and so Jesus lays out this, this, this reality. He goes, man, um, here is what God is looking for. It's not going to matter if it's, in, if it's in Samaria or Jerusalem. It's not going to matter if you have uh, um, a choir or an amazing band with drums or spoken word, hip-hop, worship, or whatever it is. Uh, that stuff doesn't matter. It's peripheral. Um, where's your heart? Are you worshiping him in the truth, the actual reality of your life? Are, 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 you, are, are you walking in um, the light? And I love this because after he lays this out, says the woman said to him, um, uh, sorry, the woman said to him, I know that, that the Messiah is coming, he who is called uh, the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. So, so he goes, hey, I know this about you. You've slept with all these men. Uh, you've been married all these times. Uh, it, it's not giving you what you want. Um, and then she goes, oh, you're a prophet. Let me get through the theology question. And he's like, that doesn't really matter. Um, here's what really matters. Here's who I really am. And then she goes, uh, again, and when you beat someone in an argument, this is a common thing. Uh, well, Dino, teach his own. That's basically what she does here. You know, well, when the Messiah comes, he'll, he'll, he'll tell us. So I don't know, like maybe it's Jerusalem, maybe it's Samaria. Um, and he goes, uh, cool. When the Messiah comes, maybe he'll tell you. Um, I, verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Cool, when the Messiah comes, I, I'm here. I love you. I want your heart. I want to walk with you. I want to satisfy you. I want, you, were, you were designed to know me. You were designed to find your life in me. You were designed to be satisfied by me, and you're so far from that. And, even, and a brutal human oppressive system has even reinforced this idea that I'm too far away, that you're too messed up to know me. They've called you dirty names and mocked you and used you, and I want you. I love you. I don't want to tell you that I love you to use your body. I want to lay down my body to love you. I'm someone completely different. And so Jesus calls her out. And he talks about this idea of spirit and truth. And again, this woman hasn't lived in truth for a very long time. For years, she's lived a lie, covering over her shame and hurt with more sex, like a Band-Aid, a way of dealing with her pain in a shallow way. And there was a part of her that was dead and had been so for a long time, and her sexual shame and her hurt kept her from living in truth or knowing anybody in her spirit. She lived shut off from others, isolated from love, from God, from herself, so she had chosen the easier path to deal with her void, just find a new lover, find a new person to have fun with, find a new person who can provide. And Jesus is going to heal her heart by giving her the assurance of his love for her, the love of her heavenly father who he reveals to us, the love that she had craved and looked for all her life, most likely first from her earthly father, and then from a boyfriend, and then from marriage, and then from an affair. And after it, she's still so, so, so parched. She's so so thirsty. But Jesus' love is going to give her two things she craved. He's going to give her the reality that she could be fully known and completely loved at the same time, which is something as people we all want. At our church in Uptown, we often talk about how as humans, we all want to experience being known and loved at the same time, but we assume that that's impossible. Because we, we like to think to ourselves, if you love me, it's because you don't know the real me. The jacked up, proud, lustful, angry, jealous, insecure, revenge fantasies that are up here. One of the ways we used to, uh, we used to show people they were sinners is we said, if, if, if uh, everyone in this room knew just your thoughts from the last 24 hours, how'd you feel about that? No one would have friends. 
you knew, if, if you knew the things I did in my past, if you knew the things that were done to me, we, just, we believe this lie that we wouldn't be loved. Or we go, if you love me, it's because you don't know me. But Jesus, he, he knows everything about her. She's going to say, he told me everything about me. And I don't think it was everything like every single second of her life. I think it was like he knew, every, he knew the stuff that people aren't supposed to know. And he loved me. Verse 27. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with, again, the misogyny with these guys though. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? All right? They're kind of with their prejudices. Uh, who's the girl, bro? They're, again, they were way behind so often. So again, they don't represent the heart of God. Uh, they, are, they are failures that represent that God loves um, people graciously. Uh, he, he actually, um, in a few verses, he starts talking about how she, what she's going to go do. Um, and they're still, remember, they went to go get food. They're like, who? he's talking about food. Instead of water, he switches to food as an analogy. And they're like, who brought Jesus food? Like, if, if, if you're just going to jump on Uber Eats, uh, why'd you send us into town, right? Weird. They're just the ridiculous. So they, but they don't ask about the elephant in the room or the, the woman at the well. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ, the Messiah? They went out of the town and were coming to him. I want you to catch this. This woman heads into town, a woman full of shame, a woman who had been hiding for a long time the fact that she was an easy girl, a fact that she was a dirty girl, a fact that she was a girl that had much to be ashamed of in her culture. She's excited to tell people who had rejected her that she found someone who knew everything about her because that person who knows everything about her loves her anyways. This is the natural response of any real encounter with Jesus. He is amazing. He knows us. He is holy, but he loves us. He accepts us. We do not deserve to be accepted, but we are wildly accepted. We don't deserve him, but he delights in us in spite of our sin. And it's freaking amazing. And if the gospel isn't amazing to you, I would ask if you actually understand it. Have you actually experienced, not have you been to going to church, you might've been going to church your whole life, but if you always thought church was an obligation or Jesus was an obligation, then you're missing this. He gives you way more than you give him. And if your thought of Christianity is you give him a ton and get nothing back, then I promise you, you've missed that. I'd love to talk to you about that. And so with, so with these elders and some of the leaders in this church, but she responds. A couple of things we learn in this passage. So what does this have to do with us? Okay, you might be thinking, I'm not a Samaritan woman uh, at a well. Um, I have ample water around me. Uh, what, what's the point of this uh, sermon for me? And I just have three quick ideas, but they're all important. One is this. We are spiritually thirsty. You may not live in the first century. You may not live in ancient Israel. You may not be a woman. You may not be a Samaritan. Uh, you may not be promiscuous, um, but you are spiritually thirsty. In this passage, Jesus uses an everyday illustration we all, including the woman, would understand I mean, it's why she's at the well. Again, she doesn't understand how you're going to get water out of a deep well, no bucket, 135 feet. But Jesus answers her question, how do I get this living water? He, he shows her how thirsty she is, how thirsty her soul is. And every man and woman is thirsty. We each thirst for something. Jesus offers water that will forever quench our thirst. Um, some attempt to quench their, their thirst through substances, uh, right now in America with the opioid crisis, we see this like crazy. Um, my Nana lives in New Hampshire. My family's from New England. Um, we were there and it's, it's crazy, man. It, it is crazy. Everyone, uh, so many people are addicted to heroin. It's, 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 uh, it's, it's pills. Uh, others attempt, uh, by the way, no one who starts using any drug assumes I'm going to be addicted to the point where it's going to ruin my life, which we'll get into. You're looking for satisfaction. Others attempt to quench their thirst through food or drink. Uh, whenever they think uh, they begin to long for something more significant in life, they eat or drink. Uh, pretty common where I'm found uh, in uptown San Diego. Again, where I live, uh, craft beer, craft cocktails, and delicious food are always a few feet away. Some of us look for comfort and solace in a, in a fancy dinner, right? Some of us, it's, it's an ice cream binge, right? It's different. It looks different. <laughs> like, I want to keep it, keep it cheap, and I'm just going to go off on the haagen I'm not going to do a trip to Europe for gourmet food. I'm bringing Europe to me, haagen 
I'm not going to go to New England for a, a quaint trip. I'm going to Ben and Jerry's, Vermont. Some of us, like this woman, try to quench our thirst through sex and romance. Some of us try to quench our thirst in friendships, material things, a big house, the attaboy or girl from our boss that never lasts very long. In Ecclesiastes, King Solomon writes about his attempt to quench his thirst. In Ecclesiastes 2, he lists all of the things he did to silence the internal craving for something that would satisfy. He tried laughing, consuming good food and drink, kind of the uptown life I talked about, building great houses, more Temecula, because you have space and doesn't cost, I mean, it's expensive, but, but yeah, not San Diego. Buying a house, gardens, accumulating gold and silver, and a stack in that paper. Acquiring slaves, building a harem of concubines to fulfill all of his sexual fantasies. This is a very direct way of what many pursue via hookups, kind of hookup apps and porn. And becoming famous for his knowledge and wisdom. He tried it all and here's what he found. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 10 through 11. Solomon would have been a really good American. All that my eyes desired, I did not deny them. I did not refuse myself any pleasure, for I took pleasure in all my struggles. This was my reward for all my struggles. When I consider all that I had accomplished and what I had labored to achieve, I found everything to be futile in a pursuit of the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. And you might go, okay, uh, what's the meaning of life? Why are we here? What are we going for? For some people, it's like, um, make money. He was the wealthiest person in the world while he was alive. Uh, there's a movie called All the Money in the World about uh, John Paul Getty, uh, a guy who, he, uh, the Getty Museum, uh, it's kind of his art collection, uh, he, uh, Getty Oil Company, and, and, and at one point he was the wealthiest man in the world. He was 1% of America's GDP was him personally. And there's a scene in the movie, it's a true story, and, and I'm not going to give you a spoiler alert, uh, but basically his grandson's been kidnapped, uh, and there's a ransom that's about, I don't know, 5% of what he's worth, and uh, Mark Wahlberg is there, and the whole movie is the struggle, is he going to pay it or not, he's trying to figure it out, and, uh, and he said, I just don't have enough money right now. And Mark Wahlberg says, uh, sir, you're the richest man in the history of the world, how much money are you going to need? And he said, more. How crazy is that? Money isn't going to do it. He had, he had sex. He had thousands of beautiful women doing all kinds of stuff. This guy wasn't like a prude who missed out on like he's repressed. He is, he is, he is completely unrepressed and is completely indulgent. And he's like, this isn't it. Knowledge, like, okay, maybe he needs to kind of go into a philosophy mode, right? Like sex and, 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 and material, kind of like Buddha. Uh, you know, this, uh, this material, this isn't just, you know, I'm, I'm wealthy and I want to walk away from it. Like a young Buddha, kind of young prince, and he'd kind of get into philosophy. He's the wisest man in the world. He knows your philosophy. He's like, apart from God, it's worthless. In this passage, Jesus cuts to the heart of this woman's search for happiness. And he tells her, go to her husband. She's like, I don't have one. He's like, you're right. And again, you see that she's attempting to quench her thirst through relationships. She was moving from one bad relationship to another, one bed to another. But like someone walking around Temecula without water, her thirst was never quenched. Because of our sin, each one of us, like this woman, is thirsting for something, some experience, some person, some position that will satisfy. Yet everything we turn to leaves us empty and longing for more. So, so one, we are thirsty, which leads me to my second point. Jesus offers us living water. Jesus offers us living water. The woman asks again, uh, where do you get the living water? Uh, Our question is one each person asks at some point, where can I find something that satisfies? And everyone asks this question. I want you to see this. I don't care how religious or unreligious you are, Christian or unchristian you are, everyone in this room, rich, poor, Latino, white, male, female, stay-at-home parent, corporate lawyer, I don't care who you are, what you've got going on in your life, every decision you make, is you hoping that you're doing something that will bring you satisfaction either now or later. C.S. Lewis said that no one sins out of duty. We only sin out of delight. Adam and Eve in the garden, they didn't go, I want that, I just, I want that fruit. And because God said, no, I just, want to, I just want to go for it. Which again, symbolic, by the way. Uh, biting the fruit is like signing a paper. that's saying, I'm my own king. But, but, uh, um, but, uh, but, 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 but when... That happens, uh, by the way, I'm, I believe that, by the way, there was a literal Adam and Eve. They, they actually ate of the fruit. I'm saying the fruit represented more. It's not just an arbitrary rule. Don't eat the fruit. That's what I'm trying to say. Um, but, but when that happens, it's, they assume if we do this, we'll be like God. 
There's a satisfaction that thinks greater than it, okay? No one's like, I have to have this affair. I have to commit adultery. I just have to. No, there's a promise. This is gonna fulfill me. This is gonna feel good. This is gonna make me feel loved in a way that my spouse isn't right now. No one's, again, no one, no one um, goes, oh man, I have to become addicted to drugs, right? No, you start using because you want something that you're not feeling right now, a satisfaction that's not there. No one sends out of duty. It's always for delight. And here's the thing. We find living water by coming to Jesus and asking him. It's only through him that we'll discover the satisfaction we long for so desperately in other things. He's the only remedy for our parched souls. But this means we have to abandon our attempts to find satisfaction on our own and turn to Jesus for lasting satisfaction. Um, Something that I noticed, um, I was preparing, I feel like God revealed this to me. I preached this text last Sunday, which is crazy at our church. And one of the things I thought about was, I I thought, man, man, I think a lot of people are just going to say, this is too simple. And you know what? Like, Jesus doesn't satisfy. I tried that. And And I found that a lot of the people that are really apathetic about their faith, and say, I don't think Jesus does satisfy. They're actually people who, who are actually looking for satisfaction in other things, and then they blame Jesus. They're like, all I'm doing is obsessing over a romantic relationship that I didn't get. I'm like, God, are you, are you even good? He's like, I am, but you're, not, you're, you're looking to this, not me. Or people that are like, oh, I'm just apathetic about my faith and stuff. And it's like, okay. Um, and, and then I go, um, again, if you're apathetic about everything, you might be depressed, even clinically depressed. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying you're very passionate about other things. Your boyfriend, your girlfriend, the, the real estate investments you're making, your job, this sports team. So, so you're very you're, you're apathetic about one thing. You're very passionate about other things. And then you're mad at, at Jesus because he didn't bless your idolatry. People walk away, walk away from faith. It's like you didn't walk away from faith. You walked away from your own desires, and you're going to go try to get them a different way. And so, so often, man, do we actually turn to Jesus to satisfy us? Or do we go, hey, um, satisfy me. Give me the stuff that will really satisfy me. And again, this is the essence of sin, pursuing satisfaction in something other than God. Sin is not fundamentally a failure to do certain moral behaviors. We have to think sinning is just kind of doing the bad stuff on a list, right? Um, sin is if you lie, cheat, steal, or you're greedy, um, but again, I sin anytime I pursue satisfaction in something other than God. Now that manifests in lying, cheating, stealing, greed, but it's also seen in pride, self-reliance, and apathy. Anytime we pursue satisfaction in something other than God, we commit idolatry. And here's one way to go. People ask, man, how do I know if I'm committing idolatry or not? Um, you know, because uh, we're supposed to enjoy th- things, to make a good thing, a God thing, all that stuff. And, and I would say this, man, a good test is um, it's one thing to enjoy something that you believe is a gift from God, but can God take it away if he wants to? Can, can you give it up if you had to? And if not, that isn't freedom, that's bondage. Because you're saying, no, God, if, if, if you're the one that come to me that to ask to take this away, then I'm saying I value this more than you, which is then, it's an idol. That's a good test. Enjoy good food. Enjoy good drink. Enjoy your family. Enjoy your sex in the context in which God uh, created it. Enjoy um, making the world a better place through your work. Enjoy the gifts he's given you. But if he goes, hey, I actually want you to give this to me. Or, or, um, and again, not that you have to give it all up for him. And I'm just saying, again, he, he gives us gifts to enjoy. He's not calling us to, to give up everything. But, 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 but diagnostically, internally, is there anything that you go, I would never give this up for you? And again, that's the stuff that we have to really look at and go, am I looking for, to this for satisfaction then? Again, we're placing that thing, whatever it is, on the altar of our hearts and giving, giving ourselves to it, hoping it will do for us what only God can do. And I want you to hear this, by the way. God is not a killjoy. God is not a hater. Um, God is not opposed to your pursuit of happiness and satisfaction. He made you to pursue genuine happiness, joy, and satisfaction in the one person excuse me, who can truly offer it. I, I say this all the time uh, to my college students when I led college mission and they were like, what? It's like, do you know God wants you to have better sex than you want to have? He's about it. He, he created the body, the nerve endings, the places, the sensations. That's him. Do you know God, God created food, right? God could have created us where um, we, we were all fed through an IV all the time. Or he could have made food taste like something disgusting. He didn't. Again, he, 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 he loves us. He cares about us. God, God calls us to a certain way of handling um, conflict. 
uh, in our relationships. We go, oh man, I have to go talk. But again, there's such a freedom in doing conflict Jesus' way where you're reconciled with people. And you, and you feel the safety of, even if there's drama, I don't have to run away or beat someone up. But we can work through things and experience deeper intimacy and deeper love and deeper life together. So he's about your happiness. But it requires you to admit that you can't find the happiness in and of yourself. Which is my third and last point. Jesus can actually satisfy us. Jesus can actually satisfy us. Again, uh, again, the picture here is like someone walking through the desert and they are really thirsty and they're looking for water. And we think that this person or this um, activity or this new spiritual fad is going to be the solution to our soul thirst. And sometimes it seems like we've, we've found it. For a while, it seems like we've stumbled on water that will quench our thirst and meet our need, kind of like when this, this gal would find a new man. But before long, we realize that what we thought was the solution isn't. So we start looking again. We search desperately for something, anything that will dull the thirst, even if it's only for a moment. And here's the, here's the big idea. Sin is pleasurable, but it never satisfies. Sin is pleasurable in the moment, right? It feels good. It feels good, right? That was for free. But it doesn't satisfy. Um, all we can find apart from Jesus is, is like salt water. It seems to help, but we end up more parched than we were before. And again, salt water is weird because it's, it's water, but the more you drink it, the thirstier you get. There's an amazing book I'd highly recommend called Sipping Salt Water about this idea, sipping salt water, about how to find satisfaction in Jesus and enjoy the gifts he's given us instead of making them our functional gods. And in the book, uh, the author, uh, he talks about this thing called the salt water cycle. I have a picture of it. It's a really simple cycle, but it's one that I think we see in our own lives. Um, do you have, okay, here it is. Um, one, we listen to a lie. Two, we drink. Three, we suffer. Okay, it's a really fun cycle. Listen to a lie, we drink, we suffer, okay? Uh, and again, you've experienced this cycle in your life. Everyone who's consistently looked at pornography has. You believe the lie that sexual fantasy can fulfill you. And each look at the screen produces more cravings and less pleasure. And you engage in riskier and riskier, riskier sexual behaviors and you engage in stuff you never thought you would. If you are married, a gap starts to emerge between you and your spouse as you keep the secret. And as you struggle physically to, to, to get aroused and you feel alone and ashamed and wildly unfulfilled, the dark underside of porn right now in America, you suffer. Everyone who's been addicted to a substance has. Again, we believe the lie that one more drink or one more hit will satisfy us. Over time, it takes more to get high. The high gets shorter. And in the process, you lose your family, your job, your finances. And again, as the opioid epidemic of today shows us right now, you can even lose your life. You believe this lie, you drink, you suffer. Everyone who's been in an unhealthy codependent relationship has experienced this. We believe the lie that this person's romantic interests will satisfy us. So we make sacrifices for them. We compromise our values. We give ourselves to them. And as the relationship gets worse, the feeling of needing the other person gets stronger. Isn't that crazy? This is us. The feeling of needing the other person gets stronger even as we experience abuse and manipulation, the opposite of true love. Everyone who finds their identity in work has been through this cycle. We believe the lie that we will find satisfaction in the applause of our bosses or our clients. We need more and more applause even as it matters less and less. We work so much that we have no relationship with our family. And we also realize that our companies would replace us at the drop of a hat if someone could do what we're doing more efficiently and it would cost less. By the way, the robots are coming. They're taking all of our jobs. <laughs> Even doctors and lawyers. I feel like barbers and pastors are going to be the only things that uh, you don't want robots to do. But maybe, maybe a sweet robot pastor going to watch my back. But you can see how quickly the thing you put your whole life in. Money. I know no one struggles with this in suburban Southern California, but I'll just throw it out there just for the podcast, I guess. In case someone in Dubai is listening. Anyone who's tried to find satisfaction in the security of financial planning has experienced this. We believe the lie that investing and saving as much money as possible will lead to peace, but actually the housing market and the stocks fluctuate constantly and we find ourselves more stressed out even if we end up with more money. We stop using money to bless people and start using people to get money. 
We are never content. Our relationships suffer because of our lack of generosity and the pretentiousness that sneaks up on us. Or because we never stop working, we don't have time for them. We suffer. One commentary said, the root of sin is pursuing happiness in something other than God, and sin produces an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. And so who breaks the saltwater cycle? And the answer is Jesus. He's the truth our souls need that allow us to drink from him. And when we drink from him, we don't suffer. When we drink of him, we live life and life abundant. Look at Jesus' promise to this woman. If she'll turn to him and take one sip of the living water, Her thirst will be quenched. But the promise continues. Not only is her thirst quenched, but she'll have access to the living water. The living water will be a spring of water for her to access whatever she needs it. Once we turn to Jesus and discover in him the fulfilling, satisfying source of spiritual nourishment, we can drink again and again and we'll want to. And again, a follower of Jesus who who, who doesn't seek satisfaction in money, vacation, leisure, Healthy children are a good job more than they seek Jesus makes a statement about the value of Jesus. When we find our greatest satisfaction in him, again, we bring him the most glory. But I'll say this, man. Someone who claims to be a follower of Jesus, who constantly drinks from the pleasures of this world, calls Jesus a liar because he comes to that woman standing by the well and contradicts the offer of Jesus. It's like, don't listen to him. His water doesn't really satisfy and that's what we're saying to the watching world. The most miserable people in the world are people who are, are Christians who pursue sin. Because you can't enjoy your sin like you used to. You can't. You know too much. And you're certainly not enjoying Jesus. And like, ugh, to the world around you, they're like, oh, yeah, I want to be like that person. But to the person who said, every time I want to go here, I go here. And I realize that this is behind. You know how much money we would save? If when we thought we needed to buy something to fulfill something, we said, Jesus, what do I really want with this purchase right now? You know how many bad decisions we wouldn't make if we said, what's behind my temptation towards this right now? And what do you have for me? And if it's not sinful and idolatrous, it'll be, oh, go for it, man. Enjoy it. Or it'll be like, come on, man. Come on. Come on, girl. Come on, gal. Woman. <laughs> I love you. This is This dude, like, this dude would be a, a cute boyfriend. He's a terrible savior can't even pick up his underwear after himself. The guy's ridiculous. He, he's whatever. And again, I think a lot of us, we're like people who drink beer or coffee in the heat of the day all day and then come to the conclusion that water doesn't quench our thirst or hydrate us. You're mad Jesus didn't honor your idol worship. Again, only Jesus can quench your thirst Whatever you crave, whatever you want, only Jesus can give it to you. And so I just want to offer this as we close. And are you satisfied in Jesus? Have you ever experienced being satisfied in Jesus? Do you see that this stuff can't fulfill you? That sin can never deliver on the promise long term. It always demands more of you and gives you less. It's a ripoff. Sin is a con man. And Jesus is the opposite. Jesus has the best deal around my righteousness for your sin, my, satisf- my, my satisfaction for your thirst, my loving community for your sad isolation, my love for you for your self-hatred, my freedom for your addiction. I offer you um, more than you could ask or imagine if you'll trust me if you'll drink of me. So I want to um, go ahead and pray if that's cool. And then, or, or Tom, do you want to take over? Yeah. Okay, cool, yeah. You guys, we, we honor him. Give him a hand, please. Thank you, bro, for blessing us. <clears throat> okay, I'm going to ask you to stand, if you're able, please. Um, Andy said something that just like, the Spirit said something through Andy that just pierced my heart. And he talked about when we sin, hear me, stay with me. I know some of us are hungry, but stay with me. <clears throat> when we sin, we don't do it out of duty. No one forces us to sin. Like when we, when we reject God's ways, we do it because we're seeking something that we, we're delighting in. Like we do it out of delight. I thought it was brilliant. It was, it, but I want to ask you this morning, before we go, <clears throat> like, 
do you know what you delight in? Take a moment, please. If we leave here without actually doing some heart work, we've just missed so much of God's desire and plan and will for us. What do you delight in, my friend? I'm going to give you a moment to think about this. What do you delight in? Don't play games either. Don't don't pretend you'd be like being interviewed by someone and have to give an answer that's like impressive and like what do you actually delight in? What gets you excited? What are you looking forward to right now? What do you delight in, man? And let me just take a moment and in love tell you the truth that unless it's Jesus, it doesn't delight in you. It's not returning that same level of appreciation. Whatever you delight in, if it's not Jesus Christ, it will not delight in you. I delight in my children all the time. I love them. The moment they can't have ice cream, they no longer delight in daddy. Like, the moment I tell them no, because I, I love them and I care about them and I want what's best for them and, and the moment that happens. Guys, last night we went to dinner for my dad's birthday, okay? And we're leaving the table. And like I said, we sang him happy birthday, right, today. We didn't sing him happy birthday at the dinner because I didn't want him to, he didn't want to be embarrassed there in public. And I, I, I'm the same way. It's like, don't put a stupid hat on me and make me, you know, stand up in front of the restaurant and sing, right? So we didn't do that. And we're leaving the table. My youngest daughter, Vivian, goes, she starts crying. And I'm like, hey, we have to go. And she's like, we can't go. And she's like, it's crying because she's like, we need to sing to Papa because I want to eat his cake. <laughs> so she starts like screaming. The moment your child doesn't, the moment that you don't give them what they want, they don't delight in you in that moment. G- <laughs> Vivi wasn't stoked on daddy in that moment. When I said, we have to go. Here's what I want you to know. Whatever you delight in, it does not delight in you unless it's Jesus. He's the only thing in the entire world that, will, that delights in you. Truly, not based on what you do for, that, for him. Like, it's a, it's, a, it's a selfless delight. He set his affection on you. He chose the cross. You need to hear that. You need to know.